Let's open in prayer. Lord, we thank you for the time that we can come together to worship you, to learn from you, and to grow in you. We thank you that you won the battle for our salvation and that this battle that we are in right now is a battle that is a battle that you have given us the power to win. And we thank you that eventually we will completely enter into that rest where we will be free from sin. In Jesus' name, amen. Before we start, I just wanted to say that one of the things um, I always observed in Helen as I saw her at Sunday school when we were having it regularly, the adult Sunday school class, and at church, and it was that she was absolutely steadfast in being here. Could say tenacious. She was always here whenever possible. And I, over, you know, since she has not been able to come, I had missed seeing her face, missed seeing her and know, and know what that meant to her that I'm sure she missed being here. And now we know for, for a fact there is some great joy in knowing that we will see her again. But there's also this joy that she is free from sin, that she is now there with her Savior. Back over three years ago, when we looked at Ephesians 6, we looked at the armor God gave to prepare for the battle we are in. And you think, battle? What battle? And the thing is, is that as Christians, we think, oh, well, Jesus won the battle. He paid for our sins, and that is very true. But we also have to understand that the battle Jesus won was for our salvation. There is a battle that we find ourselves in today and every day as, as we walk the Christian life. If any have read Pilgrim's Progress, one of the things that you see throughout that story that John Bunyan says about Pilgrim is he fought a battle every day. He went astray, he made mistakes, he did all sorts of things, but always came back and finally ended up entering into that rest. Ephesians 2, 8 to 10 tell us this. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for good works, 
which God has prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. I really like this passage, but it clearly lays out three fundamental facts of our salvation. First, it is a gift of God. Second, it is obtained by grace alone, through faith alone. And third, it will result in a new nature which will show itself by good works. This nature is where the battle lies. As we look at the nature of the battle, I want us to ask ourselves three questions. One, what is the objective of the battle? Two, who are our opponents in the battle? And three, how do we obtain victory in the battle? Each is a very important question as we understand this battle we are to be fighting, this battle we're in, whether we choose to be or not. It may be cliche, but the reasons cliches exist is the truth in them is so obvious they just keep getting used. There's this old saying that says, he who aims at nothing shall surely hit it. <laughs> How true that is. That if we just wander through life and not really set ourselves a goal, that that's what our lives are going to look like. Just this wandering path that goes nowhere. Many define their terms, their, their goal, in terms of helping the needy. They spend all their resources on providing for the physical needs of others. Though this is admirable, without the message of the gospel, that effort is in vain. When John the Baptist sent his disciples to ask Jesus, Are you the one, or do we... Or should we look for another? Jesus answered in Luke 7, 22. He said, Go and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. The lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear, and the dead are raised up. And Jesus stops there, right? No, he doesn't. He completes that sentence by saying, the poor have the gospel preached to them. See, that's the complete message to John. And we have to understand that these miracles served as exclamation points, demonstrating the authenticity of the gospel message Jesus was preaching. Others also look and say, well, the righteous life is where it's at. And they define this as a list of rules. This result is a legalistic and judgmental attitude. 
The other problem with this goal is that it leads to disappointment and frustration. Think about it. Isn't that what the Pharisees were preaching? Remember what Jesus called them in Matthew 23, 27, and 28? Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you're like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So what is it we are supposed to be aiming at? What is our objective as Christians? In Ephesians, Paul, in Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, Paul says this, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love, just as Christ also loved you, and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. He continues in 525 to 27, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ, who loved the church, gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Paul then brings this around in verse 32 and says something rather interesting. He says, this mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. There's something going on here that I think a lot of times we miss. Paul talks about imitating Christ and likens it to the marriage relationship and then says the marriage relationship is like the relationship between Christ and the church. This is all tied together. This is not individual things that Paul's talking about. He's pulling this all together as one thing. And there's one thing that I think we miss as Christians when we think about who God is. God is, we, we, we glibly say that God is a trinity. He is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But there's something about that. It's something R.C. Sproul said in, in, in something that really caught my attention in that Jesus, the Son, God the Father, and God the Holy Spirit exist in a community relationship. They are a, relation, a relational person. Now that's kind of hard to think, to wrap your head around. But there is this aspect of relationship that is who God is. So when he's saying imitate God, He's saying imitate God by trying to be like God. That's what imitating God is all about. 
Well, how can I be like God if I'm just this island by myself? I can't. I need to exist in relationship. Well, what is that relationship supposed to be? It's supposed to be with God. As Jesus fellowship with God, and as he trusted the Holy Spirit to guide him while he was living on this earth, he set the pattern for us to imitate. He walked exalting God, depending on the Holy Spirit, always in fellowship. And that's what imitating God is all about. It's why Paul didn't say imitate Christ. He said imitate God. And then he goes on and he ties it into a relationship. One of the mysteries of our salvation is that God, who existed before the world began, before anything else ever existed, he existed in relationship. And by the act of dying on the cross and raising from the dead and putting his Holy Spirit in us, he brings us into that relationship. He pulls us in with him so that we can have access to the Father through the Son. That's the relationship, and that's how we are to imitate God, is to exist in fellowship with him. When we look at the marriage relationship, and I'm speaking from experience here. When I say marriage starts off with a couple all starry-eyed, and in a short time, reality sets in. And that reality sometimes is not so pleasant. But over the years, not days, not weeks, or even months, they gradually get to know each other. And that is what the Christian walk is supposed to be about. Jesus does know us better than we know ourselves. Granted, that is the truth. But we certainly have a lot to learn about him. And the objective of the Christian walk is to understand Jesus in a personal way, more and more. And when we do this, we become more and more like he is. Paul put it this way in Philippians 3, 10 through 12, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead, not that I have already obtained or that I have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. So the objective of the battle is that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. 
And that is what we should be aiming our goal at. That is where we should be aiming our lives at, is to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. Next, we need to look at who our opponents are in the battle. To start with, I want to look at how Paul describes where we came from before we came to Christ, because this really ties these enemies together. In Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, Paul says this, You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, including the desires, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as the rest. So the first thing we see, we walked according to the course of this world. Enemy number one, this world. John tells us in, in 1 John 2, 15 to 17, to love not the world. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of the God, the will of God, lives forever. So we see here, all that we see out here, everything, those things that have an attraction for us, they really don't last. The Bible even says that eventually these things too shall pass. So we have to understand if we want that which is eternal, we must set our minds and our hearts on that which is eternal. Remember what the objective of the battle is, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. See, the love of the world is a deadly danger in that the Christian is distracted from that goal. So when faced with the temptation, it's a good idea to remember the words of that old hymn. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. That is a great old hymn, and it teaches us a very key aspect to winning the battle over the world, and that is, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Continuing in verse, in Ephesians 2, verse 2, we read, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. 
So we see the second enemy is the devil. And you notice we're going the world, the flesh, and the devil. But the order that Paul takes it is different. He goes the world, the devil, and the flesh. I think that there's a reason for that. And we'll get to it in a few minutes. But Peter warns us of this enemy in 1 Peter 5, 8 through 11. He says this, be sober of spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. As I read this passage and as I read this warning that Peter is is saying here, I imagine that passage at the Last Supper in Luke 22, 31 to 34, Jesus warns Peter. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. But he said to him, Lord, with you I am ready to go, both to prison and to death. And he said, I say to you, Peter, the rooster will not crow today until you have denied me three times that you know me. I am certain by what Peter says in this passage, he went out with a determination, I am going to prove Jesus wrong. I'm not going to deny him. And he determined within himself he was going to do the right thing. He was going to follow Jesus and he was going to, as he promised, go even to death. That's what Peter determined within himself. And yet, that wily old devil got to him. And before that cock crowed, he denied Jesus three times. And I think as he's writing this warning, I can just imagine him remembering back to what Jesus warned him and to his determination and his failure. I'm so glad that it continues on in John 21 in the resurre- after the resurrection Jesus restores Peter. And it's rather interesting how we see a completely different Peter. Because Jesus says to Peter, do you love 
And he uses the word, I, I verified it with the, with the original. Do you love? And he uses the word agape, which is that love that is unconditional, the love that God shows to us, the love that has no limits. He says, do you love agape, me? Peter replies, Lord, I love phileo, which is the word that means like a brother. It's the same word that they talk about or that is used as the name of Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Phileo, love. I love you like a brother, Jesus. Jesus says, feed my sheep. And then Jesus asked Peter a second time, Peter, do you agape me? And Peter replies a second time, Lord, I phileo you. And Jesus says, feed my sheep. The third time when Jesus asked, he asked Peter, do you phileo me? And John records that Peter was grieved that Jesus asked the third time, do you phileo me? Peter replied, Lord, you know I phileo you. There's a big change in Peter's attitude here between the Last Supper and the Resurrection. This change was that he was not he was, if you will, determined not to overcommit. He wasn't going to make those promises he couldn't keep. But there's also something here where I think he's looking at how far he fell because he was so deceived by Satan, which is why he says, be vigilant. He learned just how deadly dangerous Satan can be. So we've seen two enemies so far. Getting back to Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, let's look at the third enemy Paul mentions. And you were dead in your trespasses and sin in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among whom we too formerly lived, in the lusts of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as the rest. So here it is. The first enemy is the world, the second the devil, and finally the third enemy is the flesh. Paul talks about this enemy at length in Romans chapter 7. And in Romans chapter 7, Paul talks about where this battle lies, the nature of the battle we fight. I want to read, and I'm starting at verse 14, I'm going to read through to 24 here. Paul says this in chapter 7, in verses 14 to 24. For we know that the law is spiritual but I am of the flesh, sold into bondage to sin. 
For what I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now, no longer I am the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the willing is present within me, but the doing of good is not. For the good that I want to do, I do not, I do not do. But I practice the very evil that I do not want to do. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but the sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me. That's a key understanding of the nature of the battle. When Jesus saved us, he saved us. He put his Holy Spirit in me, but there is that evil nature that's still there. The one who wants to do good, for I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Paul talks about the battle very clearly here. This battle is between the spirit and his mind. And we have to understand that the spirit that he's talking to here, talking about here, is the Holy Spirit. So that there's this battle going on within me. Paul said in Ephesians that he put his, that Christ put the Holy Spirit within us as a seal. And he lives inside of each of us. And he is that spirit that is at war with the flesh. So there's this battle going on. And where is this battle taking place? It's taking place in the mind, in the choices we make. This is the true nature of the battle. And I am so thankful that Paul, when addressing this issue in Romans, did not end at verse 24. That question, oh wretched man that I am, he's speaking out of utter and pure frustration. Here's a man who lived for God, who had been stoned, who had been severely beaten, who had been tortured, who had seen many things happen to him in his life in service to Christ. And yet he's still saying, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? He's helping us to understand that it doesn't matter how spiritual you may appear to be. That battle is still there.
that frustration is still there. That difficulty is still there. So he asks this question, but he doesn't leave it there. He leaves it by going on. (laughs) Actually, I wanted to describe a situation. Um, for my own life. God has put the Holy Spirit in each of us, myself included, and he has broken these chains of slavery to sin. But my old nature is a traitor. Do I want to be patient and gently teach how to do something, such as on the computer? No, I rip it out of my wife's hands and say, this is how you do it. I'll tell you, Mary gets mad every time. (laughs) She is right to be angry. I'm not being patient. I'm not being gentle. It's easy to give in to that old sinful nature. And that's something I think we need all to understand and relate to, that it's sometimes these simple little things, these little annoyances, where we fall down. Why do you think Paul cries out like that? It's because he sees these things in his life. As he imitates Christ, Christ makes him more aware of those things that he does which are wrong. And then he just falls on his face. The world is a distraction. The devil has been defeated. They are dangerous. But only when that traitorous old nature pays attention. See, that's where the battle lies, is that nature within us that wants to listen to the world or to the devil. And that is why... Peter says, be vigilant. And Paul said, walk circumspectly. I remember a preacher, Willie Mullen was his name. Uh, He was from Belfast, Ireland, and he gave an illustration which perfectly illustrates what walking circumspectly is all about. He describes how when building stone walls, this is back a long time ago because he was preaching in the 70s and that's pretty long ago. Um, (laughs) And he was talking about a long time ago for him because he was back in his 80s back then. He preached at our Bible school up in Canada and he describes building stone walls 
It was a practice to break bottles and set them into the mortar at the top and leave the sharp edges to discourage people from climbing over the walls. He then described how cats would walk along these walls, being very careful to examine each place they were putting their foot, and even looking carefully, they would very slowly and very carefully put their foot down. And that's truly what walking circumspectly is all about. It's examine your steps. Make sure that when you put your foot down, you're putting it down on solid ground. That's the care we need to avoid those traps that lure us into sin. So we see the objective of the battle is that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. And the enemies to reaching that objective are the world, the devil, and our old nature. Paul didn't end his discussion with wretched man that I am, as I said before. Instead, in verse 25, he continues. And I'm going to read through until Romans 8:11 also. And this section answers that crucial third question. How do we obtain victory? Romans 7.25 says this, Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord, so then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but the other hand with my flesh, the law of sin, in verse 25 we see Jesus is the key, that it's through Jesus Christ our Lord. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Now, it's important to understand there's a couple of things going on here. Um, Jesus paid the debt. Jesus also provides the power. I remember a long time ago, I forget who it was, I think it was one of the teachers at our Bible school in Canada said that we have been saved in three ways. We have been saved from the penalty of sin. That is, Jesus paid the debt. We have been saved from the power of sin. That is, Jesus, by providing the Holy Spirit in our lives, delivers us from sin's enslaving power over us. And the one thing that we can look forward to is one day we will be saved from the presence of sin. That, that joy that we can look at, that we can look forward to is that we will enter into that rest, and that rest will be something that will be eternal. 
But as I was saying in verse 8, 1, Paul says, There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ has set you free from the law of sin and death. For the law could not, for what the law could not do, weak as I am through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, he paid the penalty. He condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirements of the law might be fulfilled. He paid the price, as, as it's saying here, in us. That's a rather interesting way of saying it. They are going to be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And remember, when, when we see the word Spirit here, it's talking about the Holy Spirit. We see what was impossible is possible with God. And that this victory over the debt is also the Holy Spirit being in us to provide us the ability. And then, and then, start, and, and then starting in verse 5, we see this. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit on the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death. But the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God. It is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Wow. Here's where the battle takes place. The mind set on the flesh is going to sin. The mind set on the spirit is going to walk in newness of life. It all has to do with choices. And hard as it may seem, especially in this country, hardest thing that we can think about, especially the way our country is, is that one word, obedience. It all boils down to obedience. It all boils down to listening to the Holy Spirit, obeying the Holy Spirit, and then here's the beauty of it. As I obey, he empowers as I make that choice, he then gives me the power to follow through on that choice. And that really is the key to winning the battle. And that takes trusting God to give me the power. If you will, and if you need to, on a moment-by-moment -moment basis. There are times when we need that. Every moment of every day. 
You could say we should be more aware of that need because truly we should be depending on him every moment of every day. That's how Jesus walked the walk. That's how Jesus lived the life. Continuing in verse 9 and 10, we see, However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. Indeed, the Spirit of God dwells, if the Spirit of God dwells in you, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. So the solemn warning is that do you sense this battle within yourself? If you don't, you better ask yourself, are you tuned in to hearing the Spirit of God tell you, hey, you need to step it up a bit, as our pastor would say. <laughs> the point is, is that we need to listen for his promptings. We need to get serious about paying attention to what he wants of us and then listening and doing. Finally, in verse 11, Paul's, uh, Paul tells us of this great source of power. He says this in verse 11, but if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, think of that, raised him from the dead. If he dwells in you, he who raised Christ, Jesus, from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So the power that gives me the victory is the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. That's a lot of power. In closing, I just want to read a hymn. This is a hymn um, written by John Newton. I wasn't aware of it until this last Friday when I heard it read in um, a study that I was going through. But it's entitled, I Asked the Lord That I Might Grow. And I'll tell you, this really encapsulates the battle. John Newton wrote it, so it's got to be good. He wrote Amazing Grace. And that's a hymn we still sing today. But it says this, I asked the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. T'was he who taught me thus to pray, and he, I trust, has answered prayer. But it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. I hoped that in some favored hour, at once he'd answer my request, and by his love's constraining power, subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils in my heart, and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, 
More with his own hand he seemed intent to aggravate my woe. Crossed all the fair designs I schemed, humbled my heart, and laid me low. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied. I answered prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mayest find they all in me. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have put your Holy Spirit into us that we might have true victory over sin. And we thank you that you answer our prayers and that you answer maybe not, not in ways that we would want, but in ways that we need. And we pray that you will help us again to seek your face, to seek to humble ourselves before you, to walk in your ways, to live according to obedience to the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.